0: Welcome to Diverse, the podcast of the Society of Women Engineers. SWE is a catalyst for change in the engineering industry, and one of the biggest ways we inspire that change is through our annual SWE Conference for Women Engineers and Technologists. This year's conference, WE21 in Indianapolis, Indiana, will help attendees at all ages and stages learn, connect, and grow. Join us for three days of networking and relationship building, over 250 professional development sessions, three inspirational keynotes, and a career fair featuring more than 300 exhibitors. Let's aspire to inspire at WE21, October 21st through the 23rd. Head to we21.swe.org for more info and to register. Hi, I'm Heather Doty,
1: FY21 President of the Society of Women Engineers. Welcome to SWE's Diverse Podcast Series. Please remember to add this podcast to your iTunes and like or follow us on social media. Visit SWE.org for more details. I'm joined today by Dr. Nia Peters, a research electrical engineer with the Air Force Research Laboratory in Dayton, Ohio. Dr. Peters received her Ph.D. in electrical and computer engineering from Carnegie Mellon University a master's degree in software engineering from Auburn University, and a bachelor's degree in computer engineering from Howard University. She is fluent in Japanese, French, and Brazilian Portuguese. Along with engaging in formal studies in the field of electrical and computer engineering, Dr. Peters has blended her love for language learning development with research on natural language processing technologies. Her research focus is is on the design of spoken and natural language processing interfaces that facilitate human-machine collaboration and teaming. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Peters.
2: Thank you for having me, Heather. How are you doing?
1: I am great. I am excited for this conversation because my mother also like majored in a bunch of languages. So this is kind of combining a little bit of family interest for me. Wonderful. Um, That's very exciting. So you work at the Air Force Research Laboratory, referred to as AFRL, in Dayton, Ohio, as a research electrical engineer. So before we get into your specific title, can you tell us a little bit about what AFRL is, what they do?
2: Sure. So the Air Force Research Laboratory, or AFRL, was actually established back in 1997 Here at Wright Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, where I work. And high level, you can think about AFRL as being the scientific organization of the Air Force. It's operated by the United States Air Force Material Command or AFMC. And it's really responsible for producing a lot of the science and uh, research that eventually gets pipelined into the warfighters day-to-day activities. We're composed of eight technical directorates, one wing and one office of scientific research. And each of those technical directorates and the wings and the scientific research organizations, they all have a specific focus. So there's information systems, sensors, material and manufacturing, human performance. And I actually belong to the latter. So I'm a part of the 7th, 11th human performance wing, and that's comprised of the Airmen's. System Directorate, and also the United States Air Force School of Aerospace Medicine. But overall, what we do at uh, AFRL is uh, we consider ourselves dedicated to leading the discovery, development, and integration of aerospace warfighting technologies, and overall providing warfighting capabilities with respect to the airspace and cyberspace forces.
1: Well, that is a lot of really cool stuff what originally drew you to work at AFRL?
2: Sure. So that's actually a interesting story and I'll I'll keep it short for your audience. But the second year of my PhD program, I actually took an internship at AFRL and it was through this uh, summer internship program called the Reppinger Internship Program. And at the end of, uh, and I, I'm sorry, I, maybe your audience will be interested in this, but the Air Force actually has a lot of different internship opportunities all the way from high school, all the way up until PhD. So Reppinger is just one of those programs. So I encourage people to just Google like Air Force internship programs if they're interested in opportunities in the summer. So I, I digressed a little bit, but just wanted to promote some of those, those opportunities. But I was actually a product of the Reppinger internship program. And at the end of the program, we had to give a presentation of the work that we'd done for the entire 12 weeks. And my presentation was well-received. In fact, actually three people from three different organizations came up and said, Hey, we really like the work that you're doing. Uh, Have you ever considered the smart scholarship? And the smart scholarship is a scholarship that will, uh, fund your higher level education, You'll, uh, that work should pour over into an objective of AFRL. And then uh, after you finish your studies, you go right in as a civilian. Um, and so it's a really nice opportunity to do the work you love and that work is well received by the organization. And then you have a job waiting on the other end. And so my response to that query was, yes, I do know about the SMART scholarship and I've actually applied two times before and I was rejected two times before, (laughs) once in undergrad and once during my master's degree. And so they said, don't worry, don't be discouraged, apply again, and use some of the work that you've done to kind of propose. Uh, That's part of the application is an actual research proposal. So long story short, I did that. I was accepted finally after two times of rejection. And uh, that's that's all she wrote. Um, AFRL funded my PhD uh, dissertation. That dissertation work was of interest to the AFRL. So when I did start work um, at the organization, I was actually able to pick it up and develop it into a full research portfolio. So really, really nice pipeline and and nice opportunity. And I know I I think I talk more about how I got there, but really what interested me is going back to the Reppinger Program When you go into the program, you're going in with an orientation. And during the orientation, there are these different people talking about different problem spaces within the organization. And that was very intriguing to me. I just didn't realize there was this organization that had all of these amazing and complicated problems out there to solve. So with the heart of a researcher and an engineer, that was very appealing to me. I was just very excited about all of the the problem spaces and opportunities.
1: Very cool. And a great tale of resilience and trying again for the third time. Third time's a charm. Good job. Right. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, Well, going back to your title, like what does the day-to-day of being a research electrical engineer look like? Yeah, that's
2: that's the cool thing. Like every day is Completely different. Uh, so I'm a bench level researcher and I do everything from reading through literature, writing literature reviews. Um, I review proposals and publications. That's a part of my work, attending research meetings, planning and running experiments, analyzing data, coding, writing proposals. So I, I span the gamut of in terms of, of things that a, a, a researcher can do. More recently, like I I mentioned, I was able to take my dissertation work and port that into portfolio. So I I have been able to apply for funding, get some funding. And now I'm more, a lot of the activities that I would have done alone, I'm able to better delegate. And so now I have a a full-blown team of developers and other researchers and experimenters. And we kind of come together and discuss the research questions, discuss the methodologies, execute our experiment. Um synthesize the results and of course, publish and so I've been fortunate that and that a, a day just never looks the same, but overall, I engage in the the entire uh, research pipeline, and um, I do that with a group of very talented and uh, very uh, knowledgeable teammates and experts.
1: Fantastic. Mm -hmm. So a major part of your work surrounds natural language processing technologies. Could you help us understand what those are? Sure. I'd,
2: I'd be happy to. So natural language processing is essentially the interaction between computers and human languages. And, it involves uh, a computer's ability to receive language, process and understand it, and then respond appropriately. So a subset of problems are like speech recognition, which is converting speech to text space. And a lot of us are familiar with those technologies. If you've ever said spoken a Hey Google or Hey Siri or even Alexa, that's the front end of that technology. There's also text to speech, which converts text. Speech. So, again, you're probably familiar with those technologies as well. You may not see it, but when Alexa responds to you, she's probably doing it based on textual information and she's saying something to you. But anytime you can hear a computer speak, it's usually using that kind of information. Text summary, most people have seen it if you've ever Googled something and you know it doesn't tell you what everything that's in the wiki document that it pulls up. It just gives you a summary of it. Um, machine translation is converting from one language to another. So if you've ever young, uh, used Google Translate, that's that technology. And then uh, a, a lot of other sub problems. So natural language understanding is really trying to get these, these systems to uh, provide context. So it may understand the exact utterance or or sentence that you said, but it has to provide some context. So for instance, if you're talking to a booking system, it has to kind of parse out what you said and, and try to map that on to what the system can actually do. And then natural language generation, that's where I dabble. And that's really about how a system should actually respond to you. And that's a whole other set of problems. So a lot of interesting spaces, and I really only skimmed the surface with some of Probably the larger um, problems or larger areas of exploration within natural language processing
1: well speaking of what you do then what are the goals of your research in particular with these language technologies and could you give us an example of how they'd work?
2: Oh sure thing, sure um, so like I mentioned, I'm interested in natural language generation, which again has to do with how a system should respond and I like to think of it in terms of these three different dimensions so what should a system say? Um, how should the system say it? And and when should the system say it? So just allow me to give you an example of each of these. So in terms of what a system should say, you can think about this in a lot of different ways, but what we've really been focused on is what a system should say in terms of how uh, it should respond to communication errors. So if Many people have interacted with these systems, and you may notice sometimes you say things, but the system will say, uh, "I don't understand." Uh, can you repeat that? Or you know, it may just cut off on you, uh, which is unfortunate. And um, we we are always thinking about how can you make this a more robust interaction so a system can actually misunderstand you at different levels. You know, maybe it received a signal from you, but it was a bunch of noise. So it can't process that into anything useful, or maybe a system received your message, but it got one of your words wrong, or maybe a system understood, or it has the whole message, but it just doesn't have the capability to process. And so what we're interested in natural generation is giving these systems appropriate feedback, clarification mechanisms. So if it really didn't hear you, it can articulate, Hey, I didn't understand you can you rearticulate? Or I thought you said this, can you confirm or, or, or not? And so this is just a step up from the canned expressions that systems are used to giving back and really making this more of a robust way of presenting information. So that's one of our problems in terms of What a system should say. Uh, For how a system should say it, we're really just interested in integrating more emotion into what are called um, text to speech or speech synthesis technologies. Those are the technologies that speak back to you. Um, A lot of them sound really robotic right now. And so, especially in the military context where there are some messages that have to be delivered with a bit of urgency or importance. And so, that's one of the things that we're interested in spinning up is how do you manipulate the the sig- the output signal of how a system responds and make it sound more urgent? Should it be louder? Should we um, mess with the speech rate to make it sound more urgent? So that's one of the things we're interested in within that context. And then finally, uh, we're interested in the timing or when to send information. And really what we're, thinking about is, um, and and I always like to give this example. So imagine you and I are are in a car and we're trying to figure out uh, what we want to eat. And, you know, if a system is just listening in, rather than us having to explicitly ask like, hey, Google, hey, Siri, or ask them for any information, what if this system could just listen in on our conversation? And, you know, it infers something from the fact that I mentioned Pete's and says, hey, you know, Nia, There's actually a pizza restaurant. It's 4.8 rating. You know, it's two miles ahead. Do you want me to navigate? That would be that the output. But one of the questions is when is that the appropriate time to to send that information? Should the system have a button mechanism? Should it wait for pauses in the interaction? And then it's dependent on what kind of information. In that example. It's a cooperative interruption. It wants to help us with what we're doing. But what if it wants to tell us that there's traffic up ahead? It doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about. So we're looking at ways to make that kind of technology a reality and always with the idea of evaluating um, how a human feels about it. So it's not just, oh, yeah, this is what we want to engineer. But we want to evaluate uh, usability and human performance. How do people engage with the system based on the algorithms that we're making? So I'm sorry, that was a, a lot. Uh, well, you do that, a lot of important it's, work. It's
1: a kind of, the, it's a kind of the, the spaces I work in. So. It's cool. Well, you know, speaking of all this, lots of current work you've been doing, I understand you recently participated in AFRL's Inspire 2021 event. So I'm hoping you can go into what is that event?
2: Oh, sure, sure. So AFRL Inspire is like the AFRL version of TED or TEDx Talks. And um, really, the goal is, is not only to demonstrate a variety of activities within the organization from program management, acquisition, contracting, engineering, science, et cetera, but also to motivate and drive individuals to think about the future, think about what can be, think about what we've tried and, and what we're still working on. So the overall goal, I mean, it's in the title is is to inspire, but it, it's also um, to provide some, some insight. And one of the, the cool things that one of the side effects of of kind of what I got out of this experience is that I, I shared this opportunity or I shared the event with people outside of my organization. So my friends and my family, and one of the cool things is, is they actually came back around and they were like, wow, you know, we're familiar with Ted talks, you know, we're familiar with TEDx, but, you know, just seeing this event, you know, we went back and talked to members in our organization and kind of pointed them to us and like, Hey, can we do something similar? Or, you know, did you know this was going on? And so it it was, it was nice to hear in my organization, people appreciated the event, but it was even cooler, even outside of the organization that people were very receptive of, of some of the things that we were doing internally. So that was, that was a real cool uh, side effect as well.
1: Yeah, so I know that the talk can be found on AFRL's YouTube channel, so everybody should go listen to it, watch it, and listen to it and hear more directly from you, but, you know, maybe you can summarize what takeaways from your talk you hope folks left with.
2: Oh, sure, sure, sure. Um, Yeah, so really what I wanted to illustrate um, as a takeaway are um, I wanted to give an example of what I envisioned as a future capability of conversational artificial intelligence systems or conversational AI systems. And so I I kind of mapped that back to a childhood dream of this AI system that I wanted to see in my future. And my goal or the biggest takeaway is I hope that people were able to see some of the current capabilities, some of the things we're not working on, but I also wanted to demonstrate some of the challenges that we are still working on and package that in a way to not only show, hey, this is what the future could look like, but really show hey here are some of the difficulties that we're still struggling with and and you know here's the work we're we're doing to overcome that so i, I hope i was able to show the future what it could look like and I, I think i tried to do that by just having a conversation with the ai system but i hope that that conversation with the ai system also showed people that there're still some limitations and and we're working to to make those better
1: absolutely very cool well, stepping back from like the day-to-day of your career, let's talk more about language. Where did your love of language originally start?
2: Uh, sure. That that started when I was eight. And um, my mother was a Fulbright fellow in Egypt. So she spent six months there. And we went to visit her. My father, my brother, and I went to visit her for two weeks. And when we were there, um, my mother uh, let my brother and I go to the market and I remember asking her for just a few phrases that I could use. And and she gave me yes, no, thank you, like very basic phrases. And she also reminded us that when we get to the market, never to take the first price, you know, there's opportunities to bargain. So so work on that. And I just thought it was so fun. I, I think one of my memories is I like to use so no in Arabic is la. And so um, when I didn't like a price, I would do la, 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 or like, no, 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 no. And the merchants just found that so funny. And, you know, I just love to see people's face light up when I made these very brutal attempts at Arabic. I I um, cringe to think about it now, but people just seem very happy that I was trying <laughs> And if something as small as saying yes, no, and thank you could bring so much joy, I was just so intrigued that, you know, what else I could do with the magic of, of speaking to people in their na- in, in their language as opposed to my own. And so that's, that's where it started. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. I did numerous exchanges. I, I went to Brazil as a high school student. I went to Japan as a college student. I went to Benin, West Africa, for as a as a Peace Corps volunteer, and then went back to Japan for an internship. And every time I went somewhere, I would immerse myself into the culture and learn the language. And it was just, I mean, it was just n- nonstop. the The bug got me, so <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I was hooked. <laughs> well, not to use not to use bug as the transition in the next part, but but maybe it's. It- funny way to do so. How did this interest (laughs) in language translate to the fields of computer and software engineering?
2: Sure. Yeah. So those actually are just, I would call them like two parallel loves. I I loved languages, but another thing that was occupying my heart was technology as well. And so uh, while I love to study languages, I was very much fascinated with technology. I was the go-to person when you know people were having issues with their computers. They were like, you know, Nia, can you come fix this? So I became. I remember thinking, I was like, man, you know, if I, you know, if I could engineer these computers better, you know, we wouldn't have as many problems. That was that was middle school. Nia I was like, I should, I should make these better. Um, and so, <laughs>
1: um, like at root cause, root cause, let's yes, go there. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> what is causing this Exactly. And so those, the, you know, those two loves just kind of grew in tandem and it's almost like I, there was a light that went off and I was like, oh man, I can merge these things, you know, again, getting back to, you know, Hey, I like learning languages. How can technology help me with that? let me build the technology that's going to help that. So they, they just all came up in tandem and, and I'm just glad that I'm, I'm able to work in both of them kind of um, put those yeah. together.
1: Mm-hmm. Bring it all together. Absolutely. Yes. 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 That's awesome. So you've attended a number of universities to receive your degrees. So what, what unique perspectives do you think you've gained having that more holistic education
2: Oh, wow. What a great question. I would say that um, every university just offered a very uh, unique perspective, um, especially within the context of where I was. Uh, in my life. So my so Howard University, my um, my undergraduate um, university is a HBCU or historically black college or university. And it, it was it's my it was my dream school. And one one of the things that I loved about attending Howard or attending an HBCU is um, to to put a lot of my education within the context of my culture. So I was not only taking engineering classes, but I was taking Courses about African studies and at the African diaspora, and even my teachers were teaching us about the contributions of the African diaspora to um, the engineering uh, domain. So I thought that was just a great opportunity to learn about engineering from the from a, a culture perspective. That uh, from my culture perspective, and and that was really very useful. Howard also gave me the opportunity to study abroad. And I went to Chubu University in Japan, and that is was interesting because a similar phenomena was present there. Where I was taking like a digital signal processing course, and I was also learning about the contributions of Japan to the engineering field as well. And so I just thought it was remarkable. Where you know traditionally we're, we're talking, we, we think about these, uh, we think about uh, different contributions of historic historically coming from one entity. And so to go from HBCU, uh, from Howard to Chubu and seeing that, you no, know, there were contributions from the Japanese, from African-Americans. And it's like, oh, you know, the world was contributing to my field, you know, sometimes in tandem, sometimes um, asynchronously. But that was an, uh, an amazing. And I encourage people, if you have the opportunities to attend multiple universities or even to visit, to really get you know, a more holistic perspective, but, you know, that was undergrad. And then of course, going from my master's and PhD studies, there was really just the opportunity to, whereas undergraduate was broader, you know, in my studies, I just had the opportunity to uh, focus a bit more and kind of hone in on, for instance, um, digital signal processing and speech related opportunities. I know both of my graduate Areas, um, Auburn University and Carnegie Mellon University, um, and Howard as well. I, I, I don't want to miss any of them, but they all provided very great opportunities to not only study abroad but to connect with um, connect with companies and connect with research institutions, and just encouraged encouraged this idea of a holistic education. So it's not about just book learning but, you know, going and getting the experience and engaging with other researchers and other people in the industry. And so I've, I'm very excited about, and, and I know these aren't unique to my universities. I, I know these are uh, very broad and well-demonstrated well, um, well demonstrated, um, uh, opportunities in, in other universities. So I encourage students in university to look beyond you know, the classroom for opportunities to volunteer, for opportunities to leave uh, either your university or the the country, and for opportunities to work, not just work for a company, but even entrepreneurial opportunities. I encourage students to to span the gamut.
1: Absolutely. So were you able to continue your language journey while in college? I mean, obviously, like you studied abroad, so that was part of it. But what other opportunities were there?
2: Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. Here comes another story.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's what we like. That's what a podcast is for.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I I, love telling this story about how a language opportunity actually got me an internship. So when I was doing my PhD at Carnegie Mellon, there was a visiting scholar from Japan and he, he was there a long time and nobody knew that I spoke other languages. I just kind of kept it under wraps. But um I remember thinking to myself, man, you know, this is such a limited opportunity. This is is a great opportunity. There's someone here, they speak Japanese. And I admit I was a little embarrassed because I I hadn't used Japanese in a long time. And I just didn't know what, I I was pretty sure it was in a really bad state and I just didn't want to offend anybody. But I got up enough nerve and enough courage to approach my colleague and I really just went into his office and just started speaking Japanese and essentially said, Hey, I lived in Japan for a while. I used to speak it. I'm losing it. But you know, if you don't mind just having small conversations with me now and again, you know, I'd love that. And he was so excited. I mean, he just started speaking in Japanese and I was like, whoa, very fast. <laughs> so, but I caught most of what he said and he was just so excited. And, and we did, we had a small conversation and, you know, that went down and, and, you know, over time we would just have these small conversations with each other. But long story short, a few weeks a months later, he said, Hey, at my company, we're taking interns. Do you want to intern over the summer? And I was like, Whoa, you know, he said, I feel like because you speak Japanese, you know, you, you know, you'd be okay. I was like, wait, is is the internship in Japanese? 'Cause, Cause, and he was like, no, it's, it's, it's in English, but you'll probably be okay living in Japan. Won't you? And I was like, yes, sign me up. So I just thought that was, you know, just one of those times where, you know, using my language and I'm, I don't know if that was the direct relationship, but in my head, it mapped onto, yes, you know, you spoke the language, you demonstrated that you had, you know, you could speak and, and, and that may have opened up the door to this opportunity to, to do an internship. So that was my first internship during my PhD program was at NEC in Tokyo, Japan. So, so
1: cool. Yeah. yeah, that's like yeah, that's great. Fun. You're like, oh, I I speak a little Japanese, and I know, yeah, I've been in the same situation where I, was, I could try this out, but I might sound silly. So good for you for breaking out of the comfort zone and see what opportunity came out. <laughs> thank you, thank
2: you. I'm glad you mentioned that because it it really is nerve wracking. I I have I have plenty of language stories where I've I've put myself out there, and I don't know how many people I offended, but. Uh, I always have an apology in my back pocket and a, I'm not a native speaker in my back pocket.
1: <laughs> That's probably a good first phrase to learn when you're yes. going to embark upon this. Uh, I like exactly. it. Good advice. Um, speaking of advice, I think we're about to close things out. So um, just kind of more holistically, what advice do you have for young researchers looking to follow a similar career path to your own? Oh, wow. Um, Let's see. I would
2: say first and foremost. um, Actually, I'm going to use the word you use, holistic. Um, I think that's a I think that's a great word um, to to think about. Whatever your career path is, I I truly believe in um, a holistic approach. You know, grab what you can. You know, if you're interested in engineering, yes, you, we know about engineering courses and, you know, we know about basic math, science and physics courses. But um, it's OK to, to step out and learn about business and learn about the environment and learn um, and, and learn about languages. It's I really, truly do believe in a holistic approach to your education. And it doesn't have to be and I, I think I'm I'm partial to this because I, I really do think it informs some of the creativity um that I think is just essential for for being an engineer. Um, you know, so I would recommend that, you know, rather than getting and I know engineering is a very rigorous area to study, but, you know, rather than getting too pigeonholed into the the grind of the engineering degree or the grind of pursuing the engineering degree um, or oh, career, I'm sorry. I, I recommend that that students uh, step out and learn about history and learn about art and learn about languages and learn about, you know, Economics, acquisitions, things of that nature, and that—that's just a matter of you know taking courses or engaging in volunteer experiences or you know starting a small business. I—I I believe it—it it, it just takes you out of out of the grind of engineering and kind of gives you a nice fresh perspective and B, I I think it fuels um, some of the creativity that's going to be essential. Um, so that, that would be, you know, my main advice is, is to, to get that variety of, of perspective as you pursue a career in, in engineering. And maybe the last thing is just to, to keep in mind grit. Um, I know, Maybe people have have heard of the concept b- before of just when when things get really hard, you know, continue to pursue them. Um, you know that I, I I can say from my experience that there have been a number of times where I have wanted to quit. There have been a number of times where I've called home crying, threatening to quit. I have um, there have been a number of really difficult times during this pathway. And I, I think it's, it's grit or, you know, the ability to push through even when things are hard, I think that's, um, that's critical. And if you need support in doing that, um, I, I would encourage you to find support, you know, use your network, use people around you all to really get through some of those tougher times because those are gonna be, those will be certain, those are inevitable. And um, I, I think using the proper resources to circumvent that um, can also be really helpful as you Pursue a career in engineering.
1: That's fantastic. Dr. Peters, thanks again for taking the time to speak with us today. I'm sure that a lot of folks will resonate with your messages of grit and kind of broadening your horizons and taking a holistic approach. I know I concur wholeheartedly. I have a music degree on top of my engineering stuff. So that's wonderful. Yeah, so much of what you said resonated with me, and I'm sure the rest of our audience as well. So thanks again for chatting with us today.
2: Thank you, Heather. I appreciate the opportunity. And I I know we're low on time, but Heather, I think you mentioned in the beginning that your mother had degrees in different languages. Do you know what those languages are?
1: Yeah, she, uh, I think her major was actually Italian, but she also studied French and Spanish. So she did all the romance languages.
2: Oh, wonderful. Oh, that's awesome. And has she used them or
1: not? professionally, shall I say, but (laughs) (laughs) it's always useful. She, well, I mean, I wouldn't say she didn't use them. Her, her, one of her primary things was doing training and technical writing and things. So anytime that you can have that background in similar languages, you can construct sentences better and all that stuff. So yes, I would say indirectly, perhaps not directly because she was writing in English still but gotcha
2: gotcha that's super cool that's it super is. awesome
1: <laughs> wonderful super cool. so yeah last little bit of fun on me but uh thank you everyone for for joining us today I'm Heather Doty for all of us at SWE thanks for listening
0: we hope you enjoyed this episode of diverse remember to head to we21.swe.org to learn more about and register for this year's conference